Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. From 1 Corinthians 14, verses 1 to 25. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be edified. Now, brothers and sisters, If I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as the pipe or harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you're saying? you will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. So it is with you. Since you are eager for gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. For this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my understanding. Otherwise, when you are praising God in the spirit, how can someone else, who is now put in the position of an inquirer, say amen to your thanksgiving, since they do not know what you're saying? You're giving thanks well enough, but no one else is edified. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, but in the church I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. In the law, it is written, with other tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, but even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues then are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all, as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. So they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Thank you, Leanne, and well done. Uh, let me pray, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, even the bits that are tricky and strange and odd and foreign, and uh, we pray that they would become more clear and that this would help us and uh, do us good as a church and we might grow to be the people you want us to be here in Dublin. Amen. So, uh, did you see how the passage ended? Did you see it there? Verse 25. So they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. 
The Apostle Paul is speaking to a church in Corinth, and he's talking about when they gather together for corporate worship, like we are doing today. And someone comes into the church gathering, probably because they've been invited by a friend who's a non-believer. They don't know who Jesus is, and they've been invited to come and learn. And as they come, the church is prophesying. Someone is speaking a word that God has given them for that moment. And the non-believer, who's never been to church before, feels like it's God's word exactly to them in that moment right there. A personal word from God to them. It's so real and specific and uh, in tune with their life. The result is the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. It's It's like, how do they know everything that's going on in my heart? And they fall under conviction of sin, they fall down on their knees, and they start worshipping God, and they exclaim, God is really among you. So what Paul is saying, when we gather together, like now, like in our city groups, like at our prayer and worship nights, in the name of Jesus, to hear the preaching of the word, to sing songs, to encourage one another, as we'll look at today, to to use spiritual gifts... We are not just doing the things people in church do. God is really among us. He's working in hearts, whether you're a believer or a non-believer. We are encountering God together. That's the title of this week and next week's talk, Encountering God Together. And spiritual gifts are a key way to help us encounter God together. Now there's a very famous Old Testament passage which I've just reread because I'm just going through the Old Testament again in the book of Exodus where Moses and God are wrestling in, you know, Moses in prayer and uh, God is so fed up with his people. He's taken them out the promise. He's taken, he's rescued them from slavery. He's brought them to Mount Sinai. He's going to say, this is our marriage moment where we commit to one another. And he's got Moses up the mountain hearing the law, the covenant that they're going to enter into, you know, their marriage as it were. And uh, as they're up there, the people commit idolatry and build a calf and start worshipping this calf. And then they fall into sexual immorality and all other kinds of things. And God is like fuming and he's going, I just want to destroy the people and start over again. And Moses is like, no God, you can't do that. What about your reputation, what the nation's going to say, aren't you a God that's forgiving and loving? And, and we see a model of prayer, and he's wrestling with God, and it goes backward and forwards as God is sort of threatening to abandon his people and not go with them into the promised land. And as they wrestle, Moses says this, remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you, and I'll give you rest. In other words, Moses' intercession had worked, and God said, okay. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other peoples on the face of the earth? So Moses says to God, if you're not going to come with us into the promised land, don't even send us. What makes us different from all the nations? What separates us as a people of God? What makes us useful in mission? is that you're with us and there's something tangible about your presence with us. And that is why the non-believer in 1 Corinthians 14 who's walked into a church gathering, not sure what they believe, and they don't conclude, well, that was a nice service. They don't conclude, I now know what Christians do. They don't go, I enjoyed that. They say, God is really among this group of people because I heard something that was so pertinent to my heart. 
And so this week and next week, we're going to think, how do we encounter God together? And particularly as we practice the gifts of the Spirit, and we use the gifts of the Spirit God has given us, and the gift of tongues, and particularly what Paul seems to be saying, prophecy. Now remember, in the situation in Corinth, it got out of control. Uh, It wasn't so much the use of the gifts, it was the abuse of the gifts of the Spirit. And it was chaos, and it was divisive, and it was, there was lots of pride, and the church was falling apart, and it was, it, was, it was not a good use of the practice of the spiritual gifts. So the problem we have is we don't actually have Paul saying, this is how you should use spiritual gifts. We have him saying, this is how you don't use them, and here is some advice on what you should do in Corinth with your mess. So it's kind of hard to unpick how we should always apply these things, but I think there's three clear instructions that we get, and they're not my most... Uh, Pithy titles, and I apologize. <laughs> Eagerly desire the gift of prophecy, because it builds up the church, verses 1 to 5. Ensure intelligibility, because it builds up the church, verses 6 to 19. And consider the non-believer, so they may not be put off, but converted, verses 20 to 25. None of you are going to remember those three points, in terms of they're too long. But hopefully, the, uh, the basic idea you will, or you could write them down. Look at verses, so, so ensure, uh, eagerly desire the gift of prophecy uh, because it builds up the church. Don't worry about the Wayne Gruden quote for now. Um, look at the argument in verses 1 to 3. Let me read it again. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. For Verse 2, anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Paul's argument seems to be really clear. In chapter 13, he's basically saying, you you guys don't know how to love each other. Let me tell you what love is. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy. And love's going to go on forever when the gifts are going to cease and all that kind of stuff. This amazing chapter. So he starts chapter 14 to this church that's divided and fighting, especially over spiritual gifts, and says, now love each other. He says, follow the way of love. Do you see that verse 1? Love is more important than gifts. Love dictates how we use our gifts. Follow the, now, if we're following the way of love, we will be thinking not about what's good for me, but what's good for the church. And then he says, if you're thinking about what's good or edifies is the language he used, builds up, what strengthens the church, we'll be thinking, what gifts could I ask for or use that I know is going to be good for the church? Not what gifts do I have that I just want to use. That's not love. Love says, what gifts do I have that I could use to benefit others? And his basic argument is, the gift of tongues, which we're going to come to, this, la- this private language we have, can have with God in prayer, is for you and God. It doesn't edify anyone else. No one else can understand it. So whilst it's very good to have this gift, he's basically saying prophecy is a lot better because if you're acting in love, you're not going, well, I've got this lovely gift that's just between me and God. You're going, I can actually bring a word to the church that would be an encouragement So the argument's simple. If you're following the way of love, you will seek to use gifts that build up the church. Therefore, prophecy is greater than tongues. Because prophecy is something that people can understand. Tongues is something people cannot understand. Now, we're going to come to it. Paul is not down on tongues. But he was wanting to say, if you're following love, you'll think about gifts in a different way. So what are gifts of tongues? Wayne Gruden, who's done a lot of work on this, said, Speaking in tongues is prayer or praise spoken to God in syllables not understood by the speaker. Paul talks about we don't use our mind later in the passage. Michael Green, 
said tongues are a Holy Spirit language designed to enable people to worship God in greater depth and with greater release in their inner being, rather like the love language of a happily married, married, married couple, which may not mean anything when the words are analyzed, but which denote the intimacy and trust of the people concerned. So prayer, tongues, speaking in tongues. Now, there's earthly languages that we're given. I would day of Pentecost, but Paul talks about the tongue of men and angels and the fact that no one could ever understand these. They must be interpreted. So there seems to be two different types. There's earthly tongues and then there's heavenly tongues. And, but, and then prophecy. What's prophecy? Well, here's the, gift of, here's the definition again from Gudum, who's done a lot of work. The reception and subsequent transmission of spontaneous, divinely originated revelation telling something that God has spontaneously brought to mind. And so it seems that this is a gift that when we gather together in our various contexts, Sundays, city groups, prayer and worship nights, or just together as believers, there could be something spontaneous, an impression, a thought, something, I think this is appropriate for you right now, or I just think this is appropriate, I'm not sure why. A word, a picture, a scripture, a dream. Paul talks about a revelation here. Something's just come to me in this moment, and I think I need to share it. He talks about words of knowledge in, in chapter 12, something very specific to a situation uh, that you might have. Now, we're going to look more next week, because Paul goes into a lot more detail about how to use these gifts, the actual practicalities of them. But here's the key point. We must not forget this. Tongues are upward. Prophecy is downward. When I speak in tongues, I'm speaking to God or I'm praising God, or I'm singing, God, singing to God, but it's me going to him. When I prophesy, or when someone prophesies, it's God speaking to the church through someone. So tongues are upwards, not vice versa, and prophecy is downwards. So Paul underlines that. Look at verse 4. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, because you're just speaking to God. But the one who prophesies edifies the church. Since tongues is between you and God, you might be having a great time, but it's not for the church gathering, he's going to say, because it's, when you come to church, you're thinking about what builds up the church, not what builds you up. So verse 5, he says, I would like every one of you to speak in tongues. He's not down on tongues. Um, they seem to be very much a part of Paul's personal devotion. We'll see it in a moment. I think it's verse 18. He says, I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies, this is the key word, is greater in terms of their use. In, in, in greater in love. That's what he means. In greater than the one who speaks in tongues. And then he qualifies it. Oh, unless there's an interpretation of the tongue, in which case it starts to act like prophecy, because now we can understand it. And it does build up. We can join in. We can celebrate your praise and your worship to God, and it can encourage me. So, that brings us on to our next point. Eagerly desire the gift of prophecy because it builds up the church. And that's because it leads to intelligibility. Ensure intelligibility that what you're doing in church can be understood because that builds up the church. If it's not intelligible, no one understands what's going on and what's the point of being here. So the argument, act in love. Therefore look to build up others, not yourselves. Therefore prophecy is greater in tongues. Therefore ensure everything you do is understood. So others can understand and engage. So verse 6 says, Now, brothers and sisters, if you come to me and speak in tongues, what good? There's no love. What good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? And I want you to notice the variety there. It's not like one type. There's a prophecy, there's a word. We're going to see there's a hymn. There's lots of different things. And Paul then draws two analogies in verses 7 and 8. One is from, from music and one is from battle. And he says, music doesn't have value unless you have distinction in the notes. 
Otherwise, it's just a wall of noise and it's not helpful. But if you have distinction and people like Emma can do what she does on the piano, it's beautiful. The noise and Edwin on the guitar. Ah, oh, the distinction is what helps make it beautiful. So when you come together, you should be able to understand all the different parts, not just a wall of noise. And then in, in, the, in the battle idea, it's like you can't call people to battle unless they can hear the call to battle, the trumpet. If it's, just, if it's unintelligible or they can't hear it, they can't understand it, you won't be able to mobilize an army. So if we want to praise God together and we want to be mobilized as an army against the kingdom of darkness, make sure everyone can understand. Otherwise, Paul says in verse 11, they'll be a foreigner to you. They'll feel on the outside. They'll be excluded. They'll be separated. Like a foreigner, I can't understand. I'm not, I don't belong because I can't understand what's going on. And in God's church, no one should feel like a foreigner. Because we're a family, we're a body. And the way you ensure no one feels like a foreigner is to make sure everything you're doing can be understood. So everyone can be built up because you're acting in love. So Paul then gives some very practical advice. He suddenly realizes, well, if that's the answer, verse 13, well, what happens if I do speak in tongues in a public meeting? He says, well, you should wait for interpretation of it, and if it doesn't come, you should pray that it gets interpreted. Otherwise, you're not following the way of love. You're just following self-gratification or something. So he, he tells them, make sure you interpret. For this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may be able to interpret what they say. And people can say amen, he says in verse 14 and 16. They can join in to say amen. Do you see that? It says, uh, you know, verse 16, otherwise when you're praising God in your spirit, so you're not using your mind, you're in your spirit, you're praising. How can someone say, uh, who's an inquirer, you know, someone who's not sure, amen? It's just like, well, they're doing something with them, but I can't join in. I'm excluded. I'm a foreigner. I'm not invited. And, and it creates a division that Corinth had. And it was all fueled by their pride. Notice again, tongues is vertical. We're praising God. It's not God to us, it's us to God. Paul keeps banging on that edification, the edifications of sort of old-fashioned whatever, building up, strengthening, encouraging. Edification of others is what matters, not edification of myself, because I'm acting in love. Therefore, it must be intelligible so others can participate and no one feels like a foreigner. And in my experience... I grew up in quite a charismatic church context and background, which I'm so grateful for, where gifts of the Spirit were used a lot. I would experience both of these things, Paul's saying. Sometimes you get the verse 25 experience, where you hear, God is really amongst us. And other times you get people going, I feel like a foreigner here, and this is actually causing division and harm. So we must take on what Paul is saying as we as a church want to grow in this area. Note, please make sure you hear, Paul is not negative. He's not down on speaking in tongues. He's down on unintelligibility when no one understands what's going on. So often his conclusion is to just go and do the tongue sing on your own. And he kind of says that at one point. So yeah, he says it in verse 18 and 19. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, but in the church I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in tongues. Now, Paul has one more line of argument. You following the argument? Act in love. Love dictates everything. Love is greater than gifts. You can speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but if you don't have love, you're like a clanging you know, a single symbol and all the rest. Act in love. If you're acting in love, you're thinking not about myself, but how to build others up. Therefore, prophecy is greater than tongues because people can understand it, and therefore it builds them up. But it's not just 
on the, the believers present. Paul wants us to go, also, if you're acting in love, you're thinking about those present in your meeting that are non-believers. And you're thinking, what can we do in our meetings to make sure that non-believers have every chance to get to know God and aren't put off, but they're converted? So Paul is urging, verse 20, you'll see there, for them to grow in love. Do you see that? Grow up. I want you to grow up. Become, stop being childish. Yeah, childish in verses, be evil. When it comes to evil, be like an innocent child. But in the way you act in the church, start to mature. And in verse 21, and this is where it gets confusing, and you'll you, you stay with me. He quotes the prophet Isaiah. Do you see there, verse 21? With other tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. But even then, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. God's people, when Isaiah wrote that prophecy, were in exile in Babylon. So God had judged them for their sin, and they'd been sent into exile. And uh, in exile, they heard foreign languages, foreign tongues. They couldn't understand because they were in a foreign land. And Paul, therefore, says, you heard from the lips of foreigners. Do you see that? Now, he's just talked about being a foreigner, and it's not positive. It signifies ex- exclusion and separation and division in the church. So Paul is saying the prophet Isaiah was giving a warning of judgment. In other words, when we hear tongues, and you know, Paul's thinking, I think, of lots of people speaking in tongues all at once, and we can't understand what's going on, he says, you're experiencing God's judgment. It's not a sign of blessing. It's a sign of judgment on the church, as it was when they were in exile, and it was a sign of judgment when no one could understand what was going on because they were in Babylon. So like when Israel was in exile and had foreign tongues, they were not experiencing God's blessing but judgment. And so then Paul's conclusion, verse 22, is tongues then are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers. As I understand what Paul is saying, he's saying uninterpreted tongues in a public meeting are a sign of God's judgment on non-believers because they will end up being like a foreigner and not know how to get involved and excluded and put off. So that's why in verse 23, Paul says, so if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in a tongue and inquirers or unbelievers come in, what will they say? You're out of your mind because your mind's not being used when you speak in tongues. Paul keeps saying that. And they'll, they'll be put off. It won't make sense to them. Let me give you a personal example. In, I, I, before moving to Dublin, I lived in Leeds in the north of England. And uh, I had a really good friend there who'd been friend for years playing on the same sports team. And, and uh, b- before I'd got to know him, or got to know him well, he'd actually started pursuing the Christian faith and been doing one of these Explore Christianity courses. You know, there's various ones. It was one of the ones from back then. And, uh, and he was started to warm up to who Jesus was and the claims of Christ and his death and resurrection. And then there was a weekend away and there was lots of talk on the Holy Spirit, which I'm, I'm sure was really good. But there was a moment that he said that there was, it said everyone started speaking in tongues, he said. And he said, it got a bit wacky. And I didn't know what was going on. And he cites that experience as to why he then started to drift off and not keep pursuing the Christian faith. Now, my friend had a lot of stuff going on. I'm not saying that was the only thing that put him off Christianity. But Paul seems to say that's exactly what happens. When people don't know what's going on, and it's all a bit crazy, and they can't get engaged, and they feel like a foreigner, it ends up being a sign of judgment. And they're driven away. So if my interpretation is right, then Paul then goes on to say in verse 22, so he says, tongues then are a sign not for believers, for unbelievers, a sign of judgment. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. And then we start scratching our heads because we go, wait a minute. 
So prophecies for believers, but then he goes on to describe a moment when an inquirer comes in and prophecy happens and they go, they were converted. So how does it work? My understanding of this, okay, so tongues are a sign of judgment for non-believers if they come in and it doesn't make any sense. But then he says sign, uh, uh, prophecy is a sign for believers, but he gives, an ex- he gives an example of a positive non-believer experience. So how does that work? My understanding is this. As you come into the church and everyone understands what's going on and say there's prophecy, there's words, there's different things happening, but everyone can understand God's people who experience blessing rather than judgment and a non-believer comes in and can experience that blessing too and says, yeah, God's presence is here. Because this is amazing what's going on. I can understand it and God is speaking to me and they're convicted of sin. In other words, when we're acting out of love, there's intelligibility, which means there's edification which means God's presence is tangibly felt for believers and non-believers. Tricky passage. That's how I've understood it after many, many years of going over it and over it, and next week we'll have more fun with it. Eagerly desire the gift of prophecy, Paul says. This idea that we can hear from God and speak in the moment in 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 an important way, which includes the preaching of the word like I'm doing now. Ensure intelligibility. Make sure everyone knows what's going on. No one should be a foreigner in church. We should explain and be clear. And consider the non-believer so they're not put off but converted. So, some applications. The first application I want to say, this has actually been one of our slogans, and it's based on this passage. Since we ever started the church, we thought, how could we be a church that's not for ourselves? How could we think like that? That the person we have in mind when we think about church, Sunday, city groups, like anything, is not me, but is my non-believing friend who doesn't quite come to church yet. Or my friend that used to come to church. Or that person that I know has become anti-God because of an experience in their life. Or the people that are post-church because they were burnt. Well, how can we make church in such a way that it's for them? One famous archbishop put it like this, the church is the only organization in the world that exists for the benefit of its non-members. And that takes a bit of rewiring how we think, because it's easy to go, well, does this church fit my preferences? Is it, is it my time? Is it my style? Is it, do I want longer talks? Do I want shorter talks? Do I want the songs to go in? And you know, my city group, I wish it in. And suddenly you go, you're not acting in love. You're just thinking, how does it suit you? So how can we change our thinking to go, what would be the best way to do church so that we could reach the sceptical person in Dublin. And by the way, the question I get most put to me on this is to do with our music and how long we sing for. And often, and I think it's wonderful, people go, I want to sing for longer, and I want to sing for longer. I think it's wonderful we want to sing and encounter God through song. Interestingly, I've spoken repeatedly to people that are new to our church, particularly people that aren't used to to our style of church, and that is the bit where I think, they don't use this language, they say, oh no, I felt like a foreigner. I, didn't quite, I, I couldn't join in the same way. It was alien to me. I'm not used to singing for that way. In fact, I never sing in a church context. And so we often go, well, I want this, but what does the person who's coming who doesn't know God yet, how can we facilitate for them? What blockages do they have? What questions do they have? How can we, how can we use language so it doesn't become this Christian internal sort of cliquey language, but just normal language? A church not for ourselves. Paul wants us to be that. The Holy Spirit wants us to be that. Secondly, eagerly desire the gift of prophecy. And I'm going to put in our city groups. It's City Group Sunday today. And Paul says that phrase four times if you want to take the notes. Eagerly desire it. It's not something you passively do. You have to pursue it. 
um, that we would have a word from God for our people in that, that would, and remember the categories, strengthening, comforting, and, and encouraging the church. Um, so that's why we have this questionnaire, to figure out what are our spiritual gifts, and then in your city group to discuss them, and go, well, how do I use that, and what is that, and oh, that's an interesting one, I've never heard of that, and, and, you know, and to explore them together. Uh, there's two images we get in this passage, don't we, of what a church is or what a city group is. The first one is a family. Do you see that in verse 6? And we skip over these verses, don't we? Now, what does he call them? Brothers and sisters. You know, it's such a warm phrase. In Christ, and Paul Matthew had it at the beginning, we're now made children of God. So that means we're brothers and sisters. So the church is a place where we're known, and like Tim was showing last week, and we're accepted, and we can be vulnerable, and we can try things and fail, and we, but we also have responsibilities. Family have, you know, in a family have responsibilities. So we should be caring and loving like that. And then the big analogy of chapters 12 to 14 is that we're a body with many parts, and that each part has a each, each different part has a role in the church. Um, but what we're going to see is there's no one-size-fits-all when it comes to prophecy. It could be a scripture, it could be a word, it could be a picture, it could be a hymn, it could be an insight, it could be a revelation. It could be something quite prepared. As you come to your city group or Sunday, you think, I've really got something I think I'm going to encourage them with. Or it could be spontaneous as we we're praying, something came into my mind. It might mean that you send a text message to someone after the city group, just to encourage them. Or the next, I, I was just praying this morning and I was reading this in my scripture reading and I just wanted to encourage you with it. Well, if it's encouraging, comforting and strengthening, whether it's exactly what Paul had in mind because of where they went text messages about that, I think it fits the category. It's a word to encourage the church, to build them up. When we're praying for one another, just be open to saying, you know, I just had this encouraging thought for you and I wanted to pray it for you. Our city groups are spiritual families where we're known and cared for, where we give and receive, where we contribute and where we participate, where we come together to say, how can I act in love for the good of this group of people? And again, we have to be careful that we don't become passengers, that everyone else is doing the work and I'm just sort of being a passenger. No, Paul says you're part of the family. Or where we're consumers, you know, does it fit my preference, my, my needs, what I want? And that's important in a family, but it shouldn't dominate in the family. So, let's be not a church not for ourselves. Let's eager to, eagerly desire this, this idea that we can bring a word to people in the moment. Thirdly, let's not make the Corinthian mistake. What's the Corinthian mistake? They thought tongues and the spectacular gifts were everything. That's why they're so divided. It had become central to church life. It had become dominating. And there was pride and, and division. And it was harmful. And they'd forgotten love is more important than any gift. And Paul has to write, oh, you've messed it all up. Oh, no, tongues are good, but like, get them in their place, you know? Don't, don't, don't always focus on the exciting stuff. You know, just get on with these. There's other spiritual gifts of helps and of administration. They're all important. Uh, and he goes into great detail, doesn't he, in chapter 12 and says, you know, God has arranged them all differently, all these gifts, and not everyone's going to have that gift, and not everyone's going to have that gift, and that's okay. Like, don't worry about it. Don't make the Corinthian mistake of saying, well, unless you've got that gift, you're not valuable. Every gift's important, and God, Paul even says, you know, God has arranged that those that seem to have less glory get more glory in the church. How can we practice that? And how can we show there's no envy and jealousy and insecurity in our lives? Because we're not going, oh, I want that, and we should all have that, and that's the best one. Just celebrate what God has given you and practice it and learn, but, uh, but don't, don't force it. and don't, We're not going to conjure anything up, and we're not going to suddenly put it front and center like they had at Corinth, which had brought the divisions. 
And remember their gifts. We had some training yesterday as a group of leaders from a lovely couple on spiritual gifts. And, you know, one of the things, their gifts are not rewards. You don't earn these gifts. And a lovely idea, I mean, it's such a simple but profound thought, is, you know, because their gifts are not rewards, your spiritual gift doesn't give you any indication of your spiritual maturity. It's not like the more spiritually mature get this kind of gift. No, they're gifts. They're not rewards. Spiritual fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, 1 Corinthians 13, shows your spiritual maturity. Spiritual gifts don't give you any indication on who's a mature Christian. But spiritual, the gifts, the fruit of the Spirit, do give an indication. And then fourthly, kind of to finish where I started, whilst we're not going to make the Corinthian mistake, would we hunger for God like they did? Would we have their zeal, their passion? Would we be like Moses, like, we don't want to do anything if you're not here, God. We don't want to, do, we don't want to just go through the motions. It's not like we just, Lord, you've got to come. You've got to be here. And would we seek God and expect him? Yes, the Corinthians have got out of control. Yes, they needed correction. Yes, they needed direction. Yes, they needed tons and tons and tons more love. But I love their expectancy, their life, their joy, their zeal, their desire for the presence of God. The Corinthians weren't dull. You imagine it was pretty interesting to go to church in Corinth. And so may we have a hunger for God and seek the Spirit's fullness in our lives in every way. The Spirit's the one that brings us that power to witness for Jesus. The Spirit's the one that gives us that power to live for Jesus. The Spirit's the one that gives us the power to speak for Jesus. The Spirit's the one that brings us that freedom from those inner hurts. The Spirit's the one that brings peace that transcends all understandings when we're in turmoil. The Spirit's the one that it says in Romans 5, sheds abroad the love of Christ in our hearts. The Spirit's the one that it says in 1 Peter brings an inexpressible and glorious joy. Oh, do we hunger for the presence of God and not settle for less? And one thing I just want to encourage you, that's what prayer and worship night should really be about. And I'd encourage you to prioritize and make them. Lord, I'm coming and we have no agenda. I just want to pray and I want to sing and I want to know you. And as a staff team, as a leadership team, we fast once a term uh, before one of the prayer and worship nights. And fasting, and I, well, there'll be a blog you know, republished, you can read all the details, but primarily fasting is saying, I'm hungering, I'm hungering for you, God. I'm abstaining from something physical so I can hunger for something spiritual. And that's you. And do something new in me, God. Give me, some, give me, some, give me something new of your spirit, of your love. Uh, that I might be able to serve and bless and represent you better. So, let's eagerly desire prophecy. Let's be a church not for ourselves. Let's not make the Corinthian mistake and suddenly put all the focus on this. But let's hunger for God and his presence through the Holy Spirit. I'm going to pray. Just take a moment to reflect and see what uh, the Spirit is doing in your heart now and how you might uh, be convicted or encouraged or provoked or stirred. We thank you, Heavenly Father, again for the two great gifts you've given us. The gift of your Son to make us your children so that we might be justified through faith and have peace with you, our Heavenly Father, and have that right standing with you. And we thank you too, Father, for the gift of the Spirit that you didn't leave us, as Jesus said, as orphans, just to figure this out on our own. But you gave us the Holy Spirit to empower us and to enable us to live the life 
and to be the people you wanted us to be, including sharing gifts and so that we might become this body of many parts with one purpose to strengthen one another and glorify you. So we pray you would do that. And, uh, and as we think about the starting 2020, we'd be thinking about the work of the Spirit in our lives, that dependence on you, Holy Spirit, to empower us and to, and to fill us and to refresh us and to enable us in all that we're doing in our church. That people might say, God is really among this group. Not because we're impressive. We might be as full of pride and divisive as the Corinthians, but that God was there. And that love would dictate everything we do. We'd never lose chapter 13 as we think about chapter 14. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.